This is 100 Years of Cocks. You are listening to a podcast by Francis Thompson. I have recently been reading some letters written by Matilda Machel in the 1820s, and I've thoroughly enjoyed inhabiting Matilda's world. I'm now jumping back to 1908 and continuing with the family budget. This is budget number 14, which means that in less than two years, since the siblings started writing to each other in September 1906, a budget envelope has travelled round the world 14 times. The seven home siblings in England each wrote a letter, then the budget travelled to Canada, South Africa and Malawi, to Wilfred, Aldwin and Neville, before returning to Sydenham, where Bernard then started a new budget each time. These two letters are from budget number 14, and there were eight letters in this budget. The large envelope in which all the letters were stored has survived. All the names are written on it, along with the date each letter was written, and where each budgeteer wrote from. Next to Edmund's name, it says, left out. The siblings were frustrated that he kept the budget too long, and they missed him out. In budget number 14, there are six letters from six home members. Below is the title, Extra Contributions. A letter from Neville and one from Vera labelled a forgery. Bernard, who liked a practical joke, wrote his own letter and then he wrote another letter in this budget pretending to be Vera. And he copied her handwriting and her style very well, including the capital E's, which was her style of writing. His forgery will come up in the podcast soon. This episode consists of just two letters, written by Cuthbert and Arthur in July 1908. It is the end of the school year, and the two teachers say quite a bit about the schools where they work. Berkhamsted School, which is just north of London, and Garfield House School, which used to be in Plymouth. After these two letters came Vera's letter describing the London Marathon, which is in my next podcast. Cuthbert's letter, Berkhamsted, July 8th, 1908. Dear Budget, the budget has come this time as a welcome relief to the correcting of exam papers. So saturated, however, am I with the examiner feeling that I found myself mentally estimating the worth of the letters as I read them. Bernard's got nearly full marks, but it was only the anecdote re Homfray and the sketch map of Hallam Field Parsonage spare room that saved Avis from a plough. In spite of my fear of rousing Bernard's wrath, I do think the weather calls for comment. What I've been accustomed to call Aurora Borealis, but apparently wrongly, was magnificent here, as elsewhere, last week for three nights in succession. I could read a letter of mother's easily out of doors at midnight. On the fourth night, Friday, we had one of the most startling thunderstorms I have ever seen. It came on about 1.30 and lasted nearly an hour. So loud was the thunder that several boys were quite terrified. A tree was struck just above incense. Since the first week of term, cricket has not been stopped by rain for a single day. Personally, I've had less cricket but more tennis than usual. 
and I've been doing quite well in the latter at the club tournament. We had some splendid men's fours on Monday afternoon, Scott and myself against Roars and Howard. As you probably know, Howard's elder brother has been very ill and they have, now that he is beginning to get on, taken a house on the common here for this month. So I'm seeing a good deal of Tristram. He goes to Peterborough in August. The school has done a little better in the intellectual line this term. Two open classical scholarships. Perhaps you saw that the ninth Wrangler this year, Leek, was a Berkhamsteadian. He has only been up for two years, so it was a splendid performance. I see in the paper this morning that two old boys have been appointed by the Bishop of London to the chaplaincy and the assistant chaplaincy of the embassy at St. Petersburg. The assistant chaplain, Aldwin will remember, R.H. Cragg. He was a small boy when you left. Naturally, we have heard a great deal of the Pan-Anglican here, as Fry was secretary to the most important section. It has at least had a good effect here in producing from the head two of the best sermons he has ever preached to the boys. They made a great impression. Father gave me the opportunity of going to the opening meeting in the Albert Hall, and it was most impressive. The man who struck me most was the Bishop of Massachusetts, a type of American who appeals to me. His theme, naturally, was that the gospel of money of getting on was not everything and that it was fast ruining America. It was interesting to hear the Bishop of Montreal say that the evils of sweating and overcrowding were absolutely unknown in the towns of his diocese. One wonders how long they will manage to keep them out. During the head's absence, I took all his work and as that was chiefly sixth form, it meant a lot of preparation. So far in my exam papers, I've had nothing very good. The Doomsday Book, I was told, was instituted to keep an account of all the pasture and parable land. In an essay on the growth of self-government in the colonies, I had the phrase, the development of their indigenous nationhood. By the way, the Daily Telegraph yesterday, in an account of the thunderstorm, was talking about the storm passing away to the south in a gradually diminishing crescendo, etc. Arthur, you are certainly not the only member of the family who loathes crowds. I never go in one if I can possibly help it, even when they are perfectly orderly. I hope to see the two Jerums here next term, but I've not yet heard whether the attraction of having had me to show them round settled it or not. Enid, I think the it in your sentence must refer to the last mentioned, which was Edmund's mansion. Can you help me with a word that implies seeming worthy of praise? And I want another word implying to prove to be false. In the London matriculation this year, they set a question in English of this nature. Express in one word the following, one who is over-inclined to blame etc. There were about 20 of them, and these two I can't call to mind. Some budgeteer ought to be able to help. Bernard, your contribution is splendid. 
what you say about South Africa puts the whole question as clearly and as fairly as possible. Hear, hear, adds Arthur. The minority in Canada, with much less reason, went through the same experiences in the beginning. It is not a question of policy or party in England any longer. It is a question of possibility. Neville's wishes could only be brought about by force, and force would need money and a united England, neither of which are any longer possible in this cause. I am not at all sure that with regard to women's votes, I am not being turned into an opponent. Bernard, it seems to me that you and the Stock Exchange will have to be more vigorous if you want to prevent the daylight bill coming in the near future. Any fad seems to find a host of supporters. Here, here, adds Arthur. I am very disgusted to hear about the book of the girl who could not lie. I started a story on that theme a year or two ago. Perhaps you remember it, Bernard. I have still got it, and it is now useless. I am now not sure what this exclamation mark implies. Acute pain, adds Arthur. Notes on Cuthbert's letter. Wilfred has added that the last page of Cuthbert's letter is missing. Cuthbert has been marking exams, so he can't help estimating which budget letters would get good marks. Bernard's letter would earn him high marks, in Cuthbert's opinion, but only her pen and ink sketches saved Alice from a plough. As in the farm machinery, I had no idea that getting a plough once meant you were a failure. Poor Avis, you had to be tough to survive in this family. And I also had no idea that the Aurora Borealis, or the Northern Lights, could be seen in the south of England. Perhaps this was due to the fact that there would not have been a lot of light pollution in 1908 compared to today. But possibly a huge thunderstorm also contributed to the ability to see the Northern Lights in Berkhamsted. I don't know. Incense House is one of the oldest buildings in Berkhamsted and it's still there today. It is spelled I-N-C-E-N-T-S. It's named after Dean Incense, who was the Dean of St Paul's Cathedral in London in the 1500s. I know that Incense was one of the school boarding houses at Berkhamsted, but I don't know if the boys lived in the actual old building that is still there today. Cuthbert later becomes housemaster of St John's, which is another of the boarding houses. And today, Cox's is one of the schoolhouses, which is named after Cuthbert. The school has successfully sent two boys to Oxbridge with scholarships in classics. Whenever someone says they've only been up for two years, they're talking about Oxford or Cambridge University. You go up to university and then you go down again when you graduate. A lot of universities still have a going down ball. In America, at the end of school, pupils have a prom. Here in Australia, students dress up for a big event, which is known as a formal. And Australia, interestingly enough, still has debutante balls as well. The Pan-Anglican Congress was a huge meeting of thousands of Anglican clergy and lay people in London, and it was based at the Albert Hall. 
1908, it was scheduled immediately before the Fifth Lambeth Conference, which is a meeting of Anglican bishops and archbishops from around the world. Dr Cox was labelled the complete pan-angler by his friend at the Church Times. Complete is spelled C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T. It is a play on the famous book about fishing called The Complete Angler, which clearly everybody knew about in the early 1900s. Dr Cox has been to the Pan-Anglican Congress every day. Cuthbert went to the opening meeting and he thought the Bishop of Montreal and the Bishop of Massachusetts were interesting. Dr Fry was the headmaster of Berkhamsted from 1887 to 1910 when he left to become the Dean of Lincoln Cathedral. Cuthbert often refers to Dr Fry's doings. Here he gets a well done. As Cuthbert says, Dr Fry has preached two excellent sermons, no doubt due to Dr Fry's attendance at the Pan-Anglican Conference, which Cuthbert clearly thinks has been good for him. Although Cuthbert has had a busy time of it, covering all the headmaster's sixth form classes. It is interesting that the siblings are discussing daylight savings in 1908. British summertime wasn't established until 1916, but Arthur thought changing the clocks in the summer was a great idea to take advantage of the daylight, and he made it mandatory for any siblings who came on holiday with him. I think he started it in 1910. Interestingly, here in Brisbane, we don't have daylight summertime, but an awful lot of people wish that we did. So, in 1910, Arthur's family went to Crackington Haven, on the north coast of Cornwall, and Arthur was in the habit of changing the clocks by two hours. It was a very remote part of Cornwall then, and very sparsely inhabited, and it meant that they were out on the beach hours before anyone else, so generally they had the beach to themselves. According to Arthur, daylight saving was an excellent idea, although going to church on a Sunday was a bit of a bother, as church service times did not follow the Machel Cox clocks. Arthur's letter. Garfield House. 9th of July, 1908. Dear family, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. I had gracefully consented to do the social act with a vengeance this afternoon to the extent of a girls' school sports and a prebendarial garden party. I say had because it now rains cheerfully and I'm reflecting with some satisfaction that it is very much needed. Alack, even as I pause to consider the next item of news, the weather is recovering rapidly. We have not yet had a thunderstorm at all, and really our spell of fine weather must have been more enjoyable than in most parts, as we almost always have a breeze to make it endurable. All the same, it's a good breeze that blows nobody any ill, and the scattered pollen has been the death of me. I am just beginning to recover. It rains again. You will gather, perhaps, that I have no news. Cuthbert, the Jerrams are going to Dover, I believe, after all, where they have found a good house to suit them. They very nearly decided on Berkhamstead, but did not quite, for a reason which I will break gently to you when I see you. I will only say now that you were not the reason, 
as your habitual modesty might lead you to imagine. For your missing words, I would suggest. Laudable, commendable, praiseworthy. These could all be used for seeming worthy of praise. And your next one, confute, refute and disprove. All of these mean to prove to be false. July 16th, a judgment on me, our sports day and such an abominable downpour that they've had to be postponed, more or less sine d. We can't anyhow do it in style now, but shall try to fix it up on the first fine afternoon on our own small field. The spectators will probably only be a few of the parents. It has, of course, been a day of alarms and excursions as we were determined to bring it off if we possibly could. We had no alternative date to fall back on this year, as the only available day was bagged from us by a big sailor's wife's tea. I have invented two good new races this year. Number one, a waddle race. In this, each competitor has his legs, below the knee or at the ankle as he prefers, lashed inside a wooden hoop, two and a half feet in diameter. The effect is very comical. Jumping or touching the hoop with the hands is a disqualification. Number two, a blindfold race. In this, the competitors are herded together in the middle of the stadium and blindfolded. Then I, standing at some unknown point along the rope, marking out the course round the field, ring a handbell for half a minute. All then start off towards the sound and go on till, if ever, they come into contact with the rope. The nearest, of course, wins. A tortoise race again figures on the programme. The same animal has held the championship for three years. We had about 150 people coming to our sports day and it is a lost opportunity as it is always a good advertisement. I have a lot of my old stages leaving at the end of this term, I am sorry to say. To my intense wrath, Aplin has got rejected by the interviewing committee for Osborne. Of course, they state no reason at all. I'm even taking the extreme step of protesting and Colonel Aplin and I have both written strongly about it. The boy is by this time a very respectable candidate and nine times out of ten would pass with credit the qualifying exam and he is in every way suited for the life. Unfortunately, he came right at the end of the interviewing committee when they were all heartily sick of it. One admiral was out of the room all the time, and of the two left, one was yawning his head off and asked no questions at all. In fact, the boy was hardly asked any question of any importance still, and the ones he was asked were all on geography, his worst subject. An interruption to take part in impromptu charades. I continue. I have today received the results of the literary competition. Very gratifying and surprising to yours truly, as I hardly gave ten minutes to it altogether. It was clearly a case of intuitive perception. Avis and I interviewed a buzzard at its nest at half-term. A very great pleasure to us both. We came across it quite unexpectedly, so it was all the nicer. 
we could see two young birds in the nest, which was full of the remains of half-devoured rabbits. Enid, ask Cyril if the pump is suitable for the introduction in the dockyard, or any government jobs here. If so, one might get a chance of speaking of it. As to books, I believe I've read a good lot, but I took no notes at the time, and I feel rather vague in consequence. The Blue Lagoon, I did not think that the situations Burr alluded to were treated in a delicate manner at all. A scrappy sort of book, too. This letter is, I fear, deadly dull. But my heart is sad within me, and having a large surplus of comestibles of a perishable nature left undisposed of, I have been a somewhat too valiant trencherman, and am now beginning to feel the effects. Poor Edmund. Nothing in his life as a budgeteer became him so much as his manner of leaving it. R.I.P. Rest in peace. Exams are upon me. When I emerge, and I've settled a few other details, I hope to embrace about four-ninths of you at Branscombe. I began this letter with rain. It still rains. Il pleu, il plu, il pleuvra. Your unhappy brother, Arthur. Notes on Arthur's letter. I don't know whether Arthur had agreed to host a girls' sports school day and Reverend Ponsonby's garden party, or whether he'd merely agreed to go. Calling it a prebendarial garden party is probably Arthur being rude. But it's raining and Arthur is almost gleeful that he now doesn't have to go. The Jerram brothers are two of Arthur's old stagers, age 12 or 13, and his old stagers are all leaving his school and going on to a private school. Berkhamstead inherited quite a few of Arthur's boys, but these two are going to Dover College instead. Arthur placates Cuthbert, saying, It's okay, it's not because of you. It sounds like Arthur normally has the use of a large field or stadium somewhere nearby for his sports day. It's pouring with rain and their sports day should be occurring. He has no chance of doing it in style now, which presumably means the large venue he normally uses is booked up till the end of term, so he'll have to make do with running his sports on the small field behind Garfield House. More or less sine die. That's Latin. It means we have to adjourn for an indefinite period. Apologies for my pronunciation. Garfield House is still there. With some Plymouth local knowledge, I've tracked it down. The plaque saying Garfield House is still on the wall, but it's now number 18 Garfield Terrace, and it still looks out onto the railway, as Vera commented on in her letters. The first floor corner was the drawing room, and it had five windows looking out in all directions, which several siblings commented on. It's still there. And next door was the bathroom, which only recently had a real bath put in, according to Arthur, with real plumbing. There was a small field behind the house, and this is where Arthur had to make do with running a small sports day, instead of the large one he had planned, which was such a good advert for his school. Arthur will soon buy Mount House School, which was a much larger building with a large field. 
he and Edmund then proceed to run a fabulous sports day every year with all the marvellous races that Arthur concocts and eye-wateringly scary obstacle races up in the trees with no awareness of today's health and safety restrictions. But Arthur is not at Mount House yet. He's still at Garfield House and he's running a waddle race, a blindfold race and a tortoise race for his schoolboys. The reference to Osborne is interesting. Arthur is referring to Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, Queen Victoria's house, where she died in 1901. After her death, part of the house became a museum and part became a junior training college for the Royal Navy. Boyce spent two years there before going on to the Royal Naval College at Dartmouth at about age 15. Boyce had to pass an entrance exam to get in and Arthur thinks one of his pupils should have been accepted, but wasn't. The Blue Lagoon was later made into a film, but in 1908 the siblings are reading the book. Bernard thinks the marriage sequences are handled delicately, and he thinks it was well written. Enid and her friend thought the sequences where the girl becomes pregnant were hilarious and not dealt with sensitively at all, and she laughed hysterically. Arthur doesn't think the book is any good either. He said it is a scrappy book and he doesn't think the relationship between the boy and the girl was dealt with in a delicate way. Arthur often comes up with some great fabulous sentences. In this letter he says, having a large surplus of comestibles of a perishable nature left undisposed of, I have been a somewhat too valiant trencherman and am now beginning to feel the effects. Sports day has been cancelled due to the rain and there was clearly a lot of cake for the visiting parents who have now not visited. Arthur has been a valiant trencherman. He's eaten too much and now he's not feeling well. And as soon as exams are over, Arthur is looking forward to seeing the majority of his siblings on holiday at Branscombe. Il pleut, il pleut, il pleuvre, writes Arthur. It is raining. It has been raining. It's going to continue raining. In the next episode of 100 Years of Cox, it is still July 1908 and I read Vera's wonderful letter vividly describing the 1908 London Olympics marathon race. I have a guest on the podcast, my friend Emma Clearbury, who knows lots about marathons. And we've also recorded a video chat, which is on YouTube. All details are in the next podcast, which is right after this one. 100 Years of Cox, the Machel Cox budget letters and all content is subject to copyright and belongs to both myself and the Bodleian Library in Oxford. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox, Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.